Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Mitch Bollinger, who's an independent quantitative researcher and consultant that focuses on the real estate sector. Mitch, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. So I thought today we would start with a paper that you wrote, I think it was last year, um, called Another Look at Private Real Estate Returns by Strategy that was in the Journal of Portfolio Management to give people a bit of a background in some of the work that you've been uh, looking at. Sure. I uh, can give you uh, the background on that. I actually partnered with Professor Joe Pagliari at the University of Chicago. And uh, how I came to do this paper with Joe is that I was working as a head of research as a consulting firm. And this was a bit of a new role for me. We went to talk to a client. They asked you know, what we thought about uh, core versus value add and opportunistic funds. And for those not familiar, in the US, you have private real estate funds that are generally put into three buckets. You would have the core funds, which are generally levered in the 20% range. They're open and infinite life vehicles. And then you have value add opportunistic value add funds, which invest in properties that have less stable cash flows. So maybe they have some lease up issues or other, other, uh, uh, other issues that make the cash flows less stable than core assets. Uh, these are closed end vehicles, uh, finite life vehicles, uh, generally levered in the mid 50% range. And then there's opportunistic funds, which are the uh, they invest in assets that have the uh, least amount of certainty in their future cash flows, which could include development projects. Um, and pro- uh, let's say you buy an, an empty building that uh, all the tenants have gone. Maybe it went back to the bank or something like that. And those uh, those funds generally are levered in the 65% range. And they are also closed end. And when I say closed end, it means that uh, investors uh, pool their money to invest in this investment vehicle. The manager goes out and buys these buildings, uh, moves to stabilize them. It's you know maybe five to ten years, and each fund's different. Um, but then when the properties are sold, the uh, the proceeds from the sale are then sent back to the investors. So that was the open-ended question that I was given to say, okay, well, how do we think about uh, core versus value add and opportunistic uh, funds? And in his paper that Professor Pagliari had done, uh, he employed a methodology where he said, okay, we want to think about alpha. We want to think about risk-adjusted returns. So then we, how do we do sort of an apples-to-apples comparison? Well, he built a model that modeled uh, core funds. And with that model, you could then just lever up the fund, these funds higher than they were, were organically. So if they are organically levered in a 20 you know, low 20% range, you can build a model and say, okay, well, what if they were levered in the 40 or 50 or 60% range? And what he did with his methodology is he found a level of leverage such that the equity had identical volatility to uh, value-add funds and opportunistic funds, therefore moving to risk parity with the uh, to make that comparison. And once you're at risk parity, then you just measure the difference in nominal returns. That ends up being your alpha. 
Well, the problem that Joe ran into with that first study is that the data set ran into the great financial crisis and the uh, a lot of the funds that were self-reporting, they just stopped reporting. So it was really impossible to tell how much, uh, what the returns were because you just had a bunch of funds that stopped reporting. So, you know, did they send all of their money back to the investors? Did they send none of it back? It's really not possible to know, but the methodology made a tremendous amount of sense to me. Um, so what ended up happening is I came across a data set called Burgess, and it's an institutional quality uh, data set that tracks, I believe it's about uh, $125 billion in value-added opportunistic funds, and it didn't have these uh, survivorship bias issues that the initial data set did. So I reached out to Joe, and I said, hey, Joe, um, you know, what do you think about uh you know, working on a paper that's a follow-up to what you did using a similar methodology, but instead we use a much better data set and see if we can really zero in on how these funds have performed. Well, uh, after, you know, going through and working the numbers out, what we found is from the year 2000 to 2017 inclusive, so an 18-year time period, these non-core funds had generated alphas of right around negative 3% annually for 18 years, uh, which is certainly not good. Um, one of the things that we drew light to that I'm not sure if a lot of people realize in the private real estate industry is we could quantify the, the risk, uh, the difference in risk taking between them. So for instance, value add funds had taken 75% more systemic risk than core funds and opportunistic funds had taken 110% more systemic risk or, uh, you know, in uh, finance terms, you would say that they had a, a beta of 1.75 or beta of, you know, 2.1. Um, and so when you make those adjustments, what you found is that investors were very much not getting uh, a, a decent return for the unit of risk they were uh, they were taking. Uh, then we took that a step further, and we have that 18-year period, and we look at a bunch of different sub-periods, every sub-period down to, to five years, and we said, okay, is it possible that you could have timed these markets? Could, have you, could you have gotten into value-add or opportunistic funds if you got in in 2000 and got out by 2007? Could you, could you have gotten a positive alpha? And the answer is also no. And it's very compelling. It's, uh, I, I'd say, you know, we applied uh, statistical methodology to it and showed that there is a statistically significant difference in alpha. Um, and it's very persistent over time. You, you, what we found is you couldn't time the market. So that's uh, sort of a quick overview of, of what we did uh, with that. And the takeaway is that investors would have been much better off either using external leverage to lever up core funds, or possibly there's been the advent of these other funds called Core Plus, which while there's not a central definition, uh, generally the accepted definition is they're just like core funds, with the only difference being is that they uh, use higher levels of leverage. And there's numerous institutional funds run by, I would say, large, very credible institutions that are running these core plus funds. So let me let me put a challenge out there for some of the core funds. You know, you obviously you look at the core fund as the as the basis for for risk, and then you sort of use that as the comparative measure. Is there a chance that that some of the volatility that sits in the in the core funds is maybe a little bit lower than 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 it should be? You know, is is that maybe why when you extrapolate that that volatility out that it, the core funds look like they have low volatility, but maybe it's because 
know, there's a lot of money flowing into them. They don't have the volatility in prices, and so risk is maybe potentially downweighted. Well, uh, we can get into the weeds a little bit of this, but here's the way that I I would interpret it. So unlike traded assets where you have, uh, you know, a a market that's, you know, you have continuous liquidity, price discovery um, for traded assets and specifically for real estate, you have uh, what they call uh, appraisal valuations. And what that tends to do is smooth out returns um, in comparison to traded markets Um, for open-ended funds, they generally provide quarterly liquidity. So there's a process by which they can figure out um, what the the net asset value of all the investment positions are. Now for value-added opportunistic funds, you don't have as much, uh, you don't have that quarterly liquidity. So their uh, price discovery mechanism is a, is a, uh, not as good as the, uh, as the core funds with the, uh, that have the appraisals, um, but uh, you know, if, but they're certainly similar in the fact that they're not traded. Um, and I would say that you know, I'm not sure if there's a, a very material difference in how they're measured, and if you know, there's an understatement of risk for core funds. And I could take this a step further, and um, when you look at sort of traditional finance, and you think about beta, um, you're not looking at total risk you're looking at systemic risk. Um, and what this assumes is that for uh, you're only getting compensated as an investor for the systemic risk that uh, that each of these assets or these funds are taking, which means that it's sort of the underlying assumption that any investor is going to own a basket of these such that they're going to effectively diversify away any of the idiosyncratic risk or the risk associated with um uh, with any one individual fund. And what we see is that the, the total risk of, uh, of non-core funds, the value-added opportunistic, um, that, it, that component of the idiosyncratic risk is much higher for those. So if anything, um, I would argue that uh, it's probably the other way around. If, that, if risk is undermeasured, it would be uh, undermeasured for value-added opportunistic opportunistic funds for investors who may not have sufficient diversity across uh, numerous of these funds to really effectively um, diversify away all that uh, idiosyncratic risk. So, you know, if if I had to guess, I would say if there was anything, the the alphas would probably be even worse um, because of that idiosyncratic risk. Let me th- let me throw one more question in on that on that risk piece, and that is to to value out an opportunistic. You sort of touched on it at the start. Is that core funds drive most of their returns through income, and value add and opportunistic draw most of their returns from that change in in the value that comes from it, and then income comes later. Is that another potential reason, or or you know how how is that addressed in in, in the paper? You know, with the data set we have, we can't bifurcate returns, total returns for uh, value-added opportunistic funds into uh, income versus capital returns. Um, And and my take on it is, you know, investors should be looking for total returns and they should really be independent whether they come from capital gains or, or income returns. Um, and that may be something that someone wants to look into, but sort of in my mind, it doesn't really matter if investors should be focused on, uh, you know, should be focused on total returns. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, if, if there is this research that's out there and, and, you know, there's a lot of consultants working in this space, particularly obviously in the US and Australia too, you know, wh- why, why is there still such this demand for, for these sectors if, if the returns aren't adding up and they're not generating alpha? Well, I mean, what I've observed in the industry, uh, and a little bit more background on me, I'm, I'm both a CFA charter holder and a CAIH uh, charter holder. And, you know, you have a fiduciary duty to your clients. Um, and if you dig in a fiduciary duty and, and really define it, it's, you know, fiduciary, fiduciaries need to consider both both risk and return. And the most prominent return metric used in the private real estate industry, certainly in the closed end funds, is IRR. But IRR has no concept of either a market uh, to benchmark against or a concept of risk. Yet, you know, this is it, what people seem to think, um, you know, value is. And, you know, investors agree to pay over an IRR hurdle rate all the time. And, you know, by implication, that sort of implies that they think it's value. And it, it's not. And there's no shortage of academic studies to say, hey, listen, this is really not what you should be looking for. And, and if I can give you a quick, you know, sort of a, a little thought piece on why that is, is let's say you're invested in a fund that's, you know, leveraged 75%. And things it, for the last, I don't know, eight years or so, you would have done really well at asset prices have much higher returns than the cost of debt. But then if you run into something like the great financial crisis, um, you know, you maybe instead of, you know, a core fund will draw down 35% because, but you took so much more risk, maybe you're down 80% and that can wipe out eight years of, you know, otherwise good performance. Um, and if you were paying for, you know, above an IRR hurdle rate for those eight years, um, you know, you paid big fees to the manager, but then in the, you know, the last year, then, you know, you lose 80 or 90% of it. If you look at that return over the whole period, you're not doing that great. I mean, you do feel good for those eight years, um, but that's why as fiduciaries, you're supposed to be looking at both risk and return. I think it's just so ingrained in the industry. Um, you know, there's a dearth of, you know, CFA uh, charter holders there. And, and to the credit of real estate people, um, you know, if you come from a, a development background or a, a real estate um, asset management background, you know, you don't need that, that uh, th- that level of financial sophistication. But I think the problem you run into is that when a lot of people come up to the real estate industry um, through an asset management background or some other, you know, some other background, um, then they start making these financial decisions. They may not have the financial tools and knowledge available to, you know, do their job effectively. And that's what we see from a, a top-down standpoint is that investors are uh, paying gigantic fees for very negative alpha. And um, if we dig into the fees specifically that we saw in our paper, uh, we saw over that 18-year period, core funds were paying about 1% uh, of invested a- uh, invested assets, 1% of equity a year versus value-add is paying about 3% and opportunistic is paying 4%. So, you know, you have these non-core funds that are performing it you're paying three to four times as much for fees, whereas you would have been dramatically better off had you just invested in a core fund, paying that lower fee, and just applied more, uh, uh, you know, applied more leverage to it. Um, but like I said, I think it's so ingrained in the industry, and and you do have to be financially sophisticated and quantify. Uh, 
quantitatively sophisticated to be able to diagnose this shortcoming and see what's uh, you know and, and see why you've had this poor return. And I'm just not sure you have that level of sophistication um, throughout the industry. Let's maybe stick to the fees part of the of the conversation. You know, is there a way that you can suggest that you can sort of map the fees that that should be paid with, alongside performance? You know, is there any suggestions that you have there in terms of what investors, you know, fiduciaries should be looking at as they think about the fees they're paying for for these types of investments? Yeah, and I think this is a you know good way to talk about it. Those negative alphas, those those very large negative and persistent alphas for non-core funds. If the fees were at parity with the core funds, around one percent, um, there wouldn't be a material difference in in alphas between core and non-core. So really, the root of the problem is the fees. And, and again, what you see is that investors are agreeing to pay for. Uh, you know, pay for, you know, over an IRR hurdle, which is not alpha. And, you know, in business school, they would tell you, you should never be paying for beta, you should be paying for alpha. And then, but that's exactly what's been happening. Um, So I, I think one of the shortcomings of the industry is, and this isn't just real estate PE, it's PE in general. Um, to figure out how do we make a reasonable estimate of what alpha is. And actually, I'm working with Joe Pagliari. I have a draft paper written on a methodology that I would think is the best practices for doing this. It's sort of a combination of what we did in our paper and the direct uh, alpha PME method methodology. And if it measures alpha, and then if you agree or if, uh, you know, if an investor say, hey, listen, we are absolutely willing to paper for, 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 for performance, but we don't want to pay for IRR because you're not supposed to pay for IRR. Anybody can go up, go out and just lever up a property. And, you know, if the if cap rates compress as they have in the last eight years, you know, you can do well. So you may not, and it's oftentimes you are not creating value as defined as alpha. But if you change the compensation agreements to say, you know what we're going to do, we're going to change it. So instead of we pay over uh, an IRR hurdle, here's the methodology by which we're going to calculate alpha. And if you do generate positive alpha, we're, we'll be glad to split it with you, um, you know, to incentivize the managers to actually create alpha. But what it does is it also incorporates uh, a market-based benchmark and adjusts for risk. Um, and it, this is sort of what uh, you know, is beyond me a little bit, is that this is what fiduciaries should be doing all day, and, and they're not. Um, and even what you see with the paper that Joe and I have written, it's published in the most prestigious research journal for real estate, you know, to my, you know, I, I think you can certainly make an argument that it's it's sort of the go-to um, journal for, for real estate. Um, and you're seeing uh, consultants who won't even reference this study. They, they won't even, uh, you know, they, they won't even countenance that it exists of, of you know, this is like the, the I would say at the, the foremost uh, of, of industry thought on core versus value add, um, you know, and I've heard it explained to me, I said, oh, our clients don't want risk adjusted returns. They just want returns, which, you know, uh, is an example I used earlier that can work great if, you know, asset prices are going up as they have as they have in the last eight years or so, you know, you feel pretty good, you're making some real good returns, but then something like the great financial crisis comes along and you could end up like CalPERS where they had a 70% peak to trough drawdown in their portfolio. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, it's, 
I think the irony of this or the way it's sort of I like to think of it is um, in order to get good long-term nominal returns, you need to think risk-adjusted returns in the short term. Um, and and I think there's certainly ways to do it. Um, and, and I think uh, investors should you know, demand that you just say, hey, listen, we're not going to pay for IRR anymore. We're, we're glad to pay for alpha and we're glad to pay for f- performance, but we need to uh, be true to our fiduciary standard and consider both risk and reward. Mm-hmm. Let, let's go back to, you talked about sort of a, a benchmark and obviously Odyssey is used a lot for the core. Is that is that benchmark still appropriate for, for a lot of the core funds and then using that to extrapolate out from a risk perspective? Well, it, I can talk uh, in the U.S., but I think um, anywhere any, anywhere else in the world, you generally have similar type benchmarks. And I can sort of talk about the methodology I think is reasonable to use in the U.S. So the Odyssey is a core fund index. I believe it now maybe it has 25 funds in it. Sometimes they take, put some in, sometimes they take them out. But I think the total aggregate um, equity is about $210 billion. Um, now that's tied in with the NACREF, National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries. And the NACREF also has an index they call the NACREF Property Index, which tracks, I believe, like $650 billion in uh, generally stabilized uh, you know, core uh, property types that are owned on behalf of institutions in the fiduciary environment. And what's really nice about that data set is that you can query it and say, okay, give me all the apartments, give me all the industrial, give me all this, or give me all the uh, all the properties in New York City or something like that. And you can really do a, a, a custom query and really sort of, um, you know, customize it to what you're doing. So I would argue the most reasonable way to benchmark a private fund, especially a closed-end fund, is let's say you, you have a fund that's, all right, we're all across the U.S. and we invest only in industrial properties. Well, then you would say, okay, well, we're going to query the NACREF and we're just going to, okay, just give us uh, industrial properties, in which case that would then set a um, uh, set a uh it adjusts for the property type. And, and certainly, I mean, it, there's not one right answer for this, but at least adjusting for property type is a, is a you know big step forward, I think makes a lot of sense. And then what you could do, you can adjust for risk and say, all right, well, this fund was levered at 55%. Um, and we think something that was going to be at risk parity sh- uh, should be also at 55%. Um, and then what you can do is you can use sort of like a direct alpha method um, on that risk parity portfolio you created. And there's, you know, a lot of different things you could do to it. Um, and with, you know, no need to get into the details on it, but you're just thinking of what's a reasonable and defendable way to try and think of alpha. And, you know, remember currently what's being used is like IRR and return multiples that have no concept of either risk or market. So you're not starting with something that's a great solution. You're, you're, you're starting with metrics that, uh, you know, are, are basically inappropriate for uh, fiduciary use because they don't, consider um, either the market or risk. And, um, you know, that's, and Joe and I are, you know, working together to put something out. And hopefully with any luck, we may be able to put something out that is sort of the best practices. And, you know, I'd say there's not a magic bullet for any of this, but what we're shooting for is reasonable and defendable. And, uh, you know, I I think uh, if everyone gets on the same page of like, hey, listen, 
IRR is not value. We need to have, we need to all sort of come to agreement on this. And then from there you can say, all right, well, what are reasonable ways to, to move forward and think about this and what should investors, what should they be paying for? Um, and I think that's, you know, we're trying to help the industry move forward in terms of uh, increasing their financial sophistication. So, you know, if you if you think about um, from an investor standpoint, what they are trying to solve for, they're trying to solve for for returns, you know, and, and getting member outcomes ultimately. So they're under a huge amount of pressure to find returns, and fixed interest is is really challenged. So they're looking to real estate as a potential way to to capture that income. You know, as as more and more funds allocate money to real estate as a as an income source, you know, what are the pushbacks that you're getting? Um, as they start to say, well, hold on, you know, this this is the best opportunity for return for us, and almost risk is becoming a bit of a a secondary thought. Is is that is that a fair way to think about it? Or well, you know, if you think about a formalized investment process, you would start with investment policy statement, and uh, then you would have to figure out you as an institution or an, or an individual. You'd say, okay, what is our risk tolerance? Can you know, can we sustain losing, you know, 80% of our money once every eight years? Can't, okay, no, we can't. So then what's the reasonable level of risk that, that we can take? And, and again, there's, these are all trade-offs, you know, and, but I think it helps to start with risk tolerance. And I think a concern that I have is a lot of pensions in the U.S., and I think all over the world, they may say, all right, listen, we have a 7% risk, uh, you know, return hurdle. So that's what we need. It's, you know, either we get that or, you know, we go bust. Um, so then they can just sort of solve for leverage. Um, but, you know, if you think of this in terms of like a normal curve, I mean, you say, and you say, okay, we live in a world where, you know, one of two things happen, either things go good or, or things go badly. Um, and if you take, uh, you know, let's say you're in a core fund and things go badly, say, okay, well, we're down 15%. Boy, that's bad. Uh, you know, that's, that's our bad. But um, if you then lever it up to 65 or 70% and things go badly, you say, well, now we're down 35%. Um, and, and again, it's, you know, if you look for the great financial crisis, core funds, I believe we're down 35%. So just the back of the envelope, if you're an opportunistic fund and they are taking, uh, and, you know, we estimate historically, or at least, I mean, we actually calculated um, that the beta was around 2 uh, 2.1. So if, uh, you know, if core funds are down 35% and any, you know, funds that have a beta of 2.1 are going to be down over 70%. Um, so, you know, these are what investors have to ask themselves and really think through what their risk tolerance is. Um, uh, you know, I mean, my perception, what I've seen is, you know, they, they sort of call it like a swing for the fences. It's like 7% or die. And, uh, you know, we've certainly seen a, a global uh, a pandemic. And, um, you know, at some point, you know, we'll see how this all uh, all works it, its way out. I mean, frankly, in the U.S., we're looking at an annualized uh, GDP drawdown of around 52% in the second quarter of uh, 2020. Um, you know, I, I would say that asset prices are, are uh, holding up pretty well, considering that, I mean, it, you know, that basically is one quarter saying that GDP in the U.S. is looking at it's going to be down over 13%. You compare that to the GFC, peak to trough, we're down a little over 5%. Um, and, it, you know, for instance, traded REITs were down, we're off 
70% peak, uh, peak to draw off the last go around. And we're looking at a GDP drawdown that's going to be, you know, two and a half times what it was last time. So in the big scheme of things, I'd say asset prices are holding up exceptionally well in the light of what's happening of the, uh, the economy. But um, like I said, for investors, it's, I, I think, you know, they need to really put a bunch of thought into um, what the risk tolerance is, and then also have a, uh, I, I think a key is knowing what you don't know. I mean, nobody could have seen, uh, you know, this pandemic coming and, and, and I mean, there's so much uncertainty out there. Um, and, and I mean, no one ever sees recession coming. No one ever invests expecting to lose money, but we certainly know on occasion they do lose money. Um, and it's just sort of being able to think abstractly like that and using histor- history as a guide to, you know, to, to get to, to really sort of think across the spectrum of outcomes and to say and really think on the downside, which um, I mean, I, I, it's got to be challenging to be a pension manager. So, well, we need, we need to catch up. All right, well, we'll just take a ton of risk. Um, but even with the paper that Joe and I wrote, you say, okay, well, th- that's a completely separate decision. Here's the amount of risk we want to take. You know, what Joe, the paper Joe and I wrote said, all right, well, here's how to get the most return for that amount of risk you're taking. And it would just be whether investing in core plus funds that are, you know, levered in the 40 or 50% range or, um, uh, Institutions can do really interesting things if they're flexible to say, okay, well, um, we want to invest in a, uh, you know, we're going to actually invest in a 20% levered fund. And, but let's say our real estate uh, allocation is 10%, but we also have a, a bond allocation. So what we could do, we could actually invest 12 or 13% in real estate and then transfer price um, that estimated cost of a, you know, of, of corporate debt back between the two. Um, and they could do that in a low cost way. Um, and essentially, uh, uh, synthetically lever up real estate. And I know that's out of the comfort zone of a lot of, uh, institutions who have these big buckets, but really from a, um, you know, from a mathematical standpoint, it's essentially doing the same thing. And and I think really thinking return per unit of risk, um, I mean, there's a reason why they teach that in business school. I mean, there's a reason why there's, you know, Nobel prizes given out for that. It's because it's a, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. And like I said, for, for pension funds, um, you know, a lot of them are underfunded and it's, and actually the interesting thing about, you know, if you go through the CFA materials and you talk about risk tolerance, um, they would argue is that the more underfunded you are, you have a less ability to take losses because you don't want to, you know, you think it's like, you know, in gambling, it's double down, you know, okay, we're, we're 50% funded, but you know, either we're going to, we're going to get back to a hundred. We're going to lose it all. And it, it, you know, you would think institutions want to make sure that's especially not the bet that they're making. Um, you know, they don't want to make it any worse, but you know, I'm not sure if that's happening. I, you know, what I've seen is there's been a big rush to opportunistic funds, um, in the last couple of years and, uh, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. Mm-hmm. Let, let's um, take it back. You, you, you sort of touched on, on REITs there for a moment and, and you talk a lot about beta and beta being the, the place to sort of adjust for risk for some of the private space. You know, does it make sense that a lot of these um, pension funds ultimately then are are within the REITs space? You know, to to make sure that risk is appropriately calculated and they can they can get a better understanding of performance. Is is that what you're trying to suggest as well? Well, I mean, in, in certainly in the paper, we we didn't open it up to REITs, and, and uh, you know, people in real estate always. Uh, you know, they don't like this conversation. Um, but, you know, my argument, I mean, if Andrew Ang, who's a, uh, 
is a tenure professor at uh, Columbia, wrote a paper, I believe it was called uh, In Search of a Common Factor for, for Real Estate, where he went through and said, oh, yeah, basically the same thing's happening in public and private real estate. Um, the only difference is the price discovery mechanism. Um, I mean, I would argue that there's a tremendous amount of data and information being generated in the uh, publicly traded REIT market that investors could use in the private REIT market, I mean, the private real estate market to help inform their decision making. And uh, actually, I did some work for uh, for Vanguard where I helped them understand or how to consider private real estate in a portfolio of traded assets um, in, in terms of, you know, how do you think of, how do you do an apples to apples comparison uh, for risk when you have traded assets and non-traded assets? And, and I think there's reasonable quantitative, quantitative ways you can do it. Um, and, and certainly there's been uh, academic work on it. You just need to apply it. And, uh, you know, uh, but I mean, it's, you know, per Andrew Ang's paper, it's fundamentally, it, it's it's the same factor in his uh, view of the world. You know, if you think of uh, factors, uh, investment world from a factor standpoint. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, you know, I, I think it helps all look at it together and, and uh you know, you, there's a tremendous amount of data and information that you can glean from the public markets to think of private markets and from the private markets to think of public markets. I mean, the, the more that you think of it as one integrated market, I think the better off you're going to be in terms of decision making. Right. So final final question, and this sort of comes back to sort of what's what's been the the um, conversations that you've had with, with investors and maybe consultants about this paper? You know, what, what's been maybe the the uh, the pushback that you've you've received and, and sort of concerns about what you've what you've raised. Well, I presented this paper to the NACREF uh, research uh, committee in Miami last fall, and Joe actually presented it to a, a, a large group out in California. And I'd say, in summary, uh, no, they're not buying it. Right, um, the whole idea of you know IRR just being. Uh, you know, that's what value is. Um, and this idea of alpha being what value is, that's sort of like, oh, it's, a, you know, a bunch of academics talking about stuff. They, they don't know real estate and, and they're, you know, it's just, it's not pertinent. It doesn't really work. And then you would say, well, but, you know, the traded REITs where you have a price discovery mechanism where you can use the measured volatility of uh, price return as a reasonable proxy for risk. Um, and you can apply your sort of historical, uh, I would say more mainstream type uh, analytical tools to, for it. Um, uh, over that same study period, 2000 to 2017, uh, traded REITs tremendously outperformed the indexes of core value added and opportunistic funds. And essentially they're doing the biggest reason for it is they're doing exactly what our paper suggested investors should have been doing all along. It's applying more leverage to uh, stabilize properties and, pay, and uh, paying a fee, an a- asset management fee. And for, for traded REITs, it's a, it's a G&A fee instead, but um, it's essentially the same thing. Um, it's, it's paying uh, you know, a similar fee to what you pay for core funds. And so you know, REITs over that same period were levered about average about 44%, um, core funds about 22%, and core funds, I mean, REITs outperformed core funds by a nominal 4% a year, they outperformed value add by about 3.5% a year, and they outperformed opportunistic funds by about 2% a year. But the thing is, 
is when you get down to the asset level returns, and especially when you normalize for asset type, there is not there's not a material difference between the assets, the performance of the assets own in uh, core funds and uh, in traded REITs, and actually. Professor Pagliari had also done some work on that, and I sort of built on that some with some other data sets and essentially came to the same conclusion. So, you know, when some people look at our paper and said, oh, it's all theoretical, and I say, well, I mean, certainly there is some theory applied, but, you know, sitting parallel to all this private real estate the whole time is the public market, which essentially uh, did the same, it did exactly what our paper suggests investors should have been doing and just applying more leverage to, uh, to core funds, and they really did dramatically out perform. And you think about that, it's a 4% outperform over 20 years. You do the math on, I guess it's actually 18 years, but um, yeah, 4% outperformance over uh, 18 years. I mean, that, that really moves the needle on what your portfolio looks like after 18 years. But there's no reason why private real estate funds couldn't get that same level of performance as the traded REITs have. Um, but they just need to start thinking alpha instead of IRR. It's, you know, it, think of, they need to change what they think of what value is. Value is alpha, value is not IRR. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Mitch. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.